You are listening to Vueltas y Revueltas, the cycling podcast at the Vuelta España, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Stage 3. Today we are in Picón Blanco. As you obviously see, we didn't care. Uh, it was more uh, our guys were riding all day, uh, and uh, they did a super great job. Uh, uh, yeah, Ryan uh, took the jersey. Uh, yeah, uh, he was the strongest, so uh, yeah, he's uh, good for us. Like I said, uh, for us it doesn't really matter uh, if we fight for the win or uh, or not. We go a block uh, on the last climb, uh, and uh, yeah, it's not because of me, because for me it's fine. But uh, yeah, it's a race, and uh, it was hard, uh, definitely. It's, uh, Tough mountain. Hey, amigo, you know you have a face beautiful enough to be worth $2,000. Oh my God, I thought you were happily married. You see, this in this world, troubling. there's two kinds of people, my friend. Those with loaded guns and those who dig. You dig. This sounds like um, it could possibly be a movie quote from something. It could, it could be. It could well be. Yeah, um, well, we've been uh, we've been steeped today, haven't we, in the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, who was the good, and who was the bad, and who was the ugly of today's stage? Well, Daniel, do you know who would make a brilliant character in a spaghetti western? I don't know. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> that was Primoz Roglic at the finish today, um, and just before that, All it, was the da- it was Daniel. <laughs> it was Daniel. Doing a cracking uh, Primoz Roglic impersonation, but he's very stoic, isn't he, old Primoz? And he was pretty happy, wasn't he? He was pretty chipper at the finish today because we well, didn't roglify the stage. I thought he was going to do that. I thought it was it was a perfect finish for him today to just nick round everyone at the end and grab those bonus seconds, take well, keep the red jersey, take the stage victory. But we had a different winner, didn't we? We did, we did, and it did appear. Um, to be a stage where the the team with the red jersey, Jumbo Visma, seemed reasonably content for the breakaway to get a big lead and to contest the finish and for one of those riders to take the red jersey. And that's exactly what happened. Well, as Rog said there, oh, we didn't care. <laughs> <laughs> uh, absolutely, yeah. Um, that was that was evident, I think. And uh, there was a bit of a headwind up the climb, wasn't there? It, it, slightly neutralized but we did learn one or two things some riders in difficulty one or two riders who we know now will not probably contest to try and win this race overall we saw a resurgent movistar didn't we but we shouldn't we shouldn't issue too many spoilers before the duke of wellington lionel bernie's tale of the tapper and later on we will tell you why tale we of were the etapa, we because were, we're in spain l- yeah Italy. later on we will we will obviously reveal why we were uh, quoting from the good the bad and the ugly because we had a bit of a, a detour a bit of a diversion after the start of the stage to the 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 scene of the the final scene from the movie um sad hill cemetery close to the start of today's stage and we'll be hearing from there a bit later on it was the first uphill finish of the welter at Picon Blanco, 202.8 kilometers, and one of only three stages in this year's race over 200 kilometers long. So by welter standards, a long day out in the saddle, clocking over five hours. And 10 years after his last welter stage win, five years after a victory in the Giro, it was the Estonian Rain Tarame of the Antamarche Wanti Gobert team who won the stage from a break that was packed with former Grand Tour stage winners and he took the leader's red jersey as well. 
There was one non-starter this morning. Canada's Alexander Catterford of Israel Startup Nation crashed yesterday and broke his collarbone so he couldn't start. And one non-finisher too, Frederic Frison of Lotto Soudal, pulled out during the race. The break was away all day and their lead nudged nine minutes at one point. And in it alongside Tarame were Lillian Kalmajan of AG2R, a winner of stages of the Vuelta and the Tour in the past, Kenny Ellison de Trek Segafredo, who won a Vuelta stage on the Angliru a few years ago, Joe Dombrowski of UAE Team Emirates, who won the Giro stage at Sestola earlier this year. So already that's a small handful of riders with Grand Tour stage winning experience. Also in there was Jetsa Ball of Burgos BH. Now you may remember he was second behind his teammate Angel Madrazo on the summit finish at Havalambre two years ago. There was Tobias Bayer of Alpacin Fenix, a Grand Tour debutant, but knew the roads very well because he'd finished fifth when the Vuelta a Burgos went over Picon Blanco a couple of weeks ago, and then completing the break, but by no means making up the numbers, Julen Ames Cueta of Caja Rural and Antonio Jesus Soto of Euskatel, a Grand Tour debutant as well, but the best placed overall and for a long while was the virtual leader on the road until he was dropped on the final climb. Now the gap held at eight minutes until a little climb of the Alto de Bocos and then it came down to six minutes and then going into the bottom of the final climb with UAE Team Emirates and Bahrain victorious going full gaspacho on the front of the bunch the gap was trimmed down to four minutes but the break always had enough in hand to fight it out on the climb. And on the climb, it was Kalmajan who was the most aggressive, attacking first to slim the group down to five and then again to try and reduce it further. But he paid for that effort because when Dombrowski then took over, it was Kalmajan who couldn't keep up with the pace. And that left three at the front, Dombrowski, Tarame and Elisande. Now, Elisande had looked vulnerable earlier on on the climb, so it was perhaps no surprise that he lost touch. And when Tarame went with just under three kilometres to go, Dombrowski couldn't go with him. And so the Estonian soloed to the line to take the stage. Then came Dombrowski, Elisson and Kalmajan before the GC favourites group. And in that group, there was a strong showing from Movistar. Alejandro Valverde lifted the pace on the climb. And it was Enric Mas who clipped away to finish a few seconds ahead of the rest. Then came a group of seven led by Miguel Angel Lopez, also of Movistar. Roglic, Adam Yates, Landa, Ciccone, Bernal and Valverde were just behind. And a little bit off the back of that group, former Vuelta champion Fabio Aru riding his last Grand Tour before retirement. Of those who lost a bit of ground, there was David de la Cruz of UAE Team Emirates. He'd been really aggressive further down the hill, but perhaps paid for that effort. The Bahrain victorious duo of Gino Maida and Mark Padun and Hugh Carthy of EF Education Nippo limited their losses to Roglic to under 20 seconds. Bardet and Vlasov, perhaps surprisingly, they lost 29 seconds to Roglic. And Richard Carapaz, the Olympic champion, perhaps feeling the effects of a very busy summer, lost a minute to Roglic. So all the eggs in Egan Bernal's basket for Ineos Grenadiers, although of course they still have Adam Yates in the picture as well. So Tarame in red tomorrow, he leads by 25 seconds from Elisande, Roglic is at 30, Kalmajan at 35, then come Mas, Lopez and a group of Valverde, Ciccone and Bernal, all within a minute of the red jersey. The green jersey still with Jasper Philipson, Tarame is also the leader in the King of the Mountains, but that will be worn by Elisande tomorrow. And Egan Bernal takes over the white jersey from Bagioli. 
that's the best young rider category and kind of ominous when you consider that he has already won the Giro and the Tour but is still eligible for the best young rider classification. Tomorrow's stage is a lumpy one. It should be a sprint of some sort, but there's a bit of a ramp at the finish. And with the Vuelta, well, who really knows? You are listening to Vueltas y Revueltas, the cycling podcast at the Vuelta España, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Still guessing on fueling? Not sure what or when to eat and drink on rights that matter? Never again. Optimize your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data, actionable insights, and personalized analytics. We're here to help you achieve your performance goals. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success. Thanks very much indeed to our title sponsor, Super Sapiens. We're very grateful to them for their support. It's the continuous glucose monitoring devices that you wear on your arm. And tell you, your, your blood sugar levels are a crucial indicator for training and performance. We're running a competition in conjunction with Super Sapiens to win three months' worth of Super Sapiens devices. If you feel they could benefit you in whatever you're aiming to achieve, um, send us an audio clip of less than 60 seconds telling us how and why you'd use Super Sapiens. You can find out how to enter the competition at thecyclingpodcast.com. There'll be instructions there as well about how to submit your audio clip. Let's hear uh, one of the latest entries now. Hi, everyone. My name is Pete Biggs, and I'm a long-time listener and friend of the podcast. I used to be a regular road cyclist, but just over a year ago, I began experiencing really bad sciatica and something called foot drop after a long ride as a result of what turned out to be two herniated discs in my back. The foot drop means that I can't lift my left foot properly, so I've had real trouble walking and I've had to stop riding in any serious exercise almost completely because anything longer than a very short ride risks yet another very painful attack. I'm going for spinal surgery next week, which I hope will fix the problem, and let me begin what I know will be a long process of recovery. I've become very unfit, I've put on a fair amount of weight, and I'm struggling with fatigue, which I know has something to do with my blood sugar levels, but I just don't know what. Given this, being able to do a 100km ride is a distant dream right now, unfortunately. But that's my goal. And I'm sure that the Super Sapiens system can help me achieve it by helping me optimise my fueling, energy management and recovery to help me get to that 100k faster. Well, Daniel, uh, uh, an interesting stage today, a very cold stage. I mean, we were freezing cold up there at the summit, weren't we? Yes, Richard. I mean, we're we, just, just warming up now, really. Well, it was shades of last year's Vuelta, which of course took place in October and November. It particularly reminded me of the stage that finished at Formigal, which was one of the most Arctic stages, Baltic stages I've ever done on a Grand Tour, certainly. Been in a strange Vuelta for weather. We've gone from extreme heat to well, what felt like extreme cold up there. And uh, riders, and you know, for the riders too, difficult to adjust to that because they got to the top of Picon Blanco and then had to ride back down to the team buses. And there wasn't a lot of space up there, not a lot of team personnel. Anter Marche won the stage. They won stage three of the Giro as well, didn't they, this year with uh, Taco van der Horn? Um, and winning the stage meant that a lot of their staff were kind of, you know, sucked into helping Taramai negotiate all the things you have to do when you win a stage and take over the race lead. And um, quite a few of their riders, when they appeared at the summit, couldn't find soigneurs and carers and people uh, with kit and so on and I saw one or two of them setting off back down the climb without wearing any extra clothing 
Um, you know, managing your yourself uh, at the finish after a stage like that is really important and could have implications for the rest of the race. Who knows? But um, we d we didn't we didn't learn an awful lot today, did we? About about GC. I thought was what was quite encouraging today at the end of the stage is that um, unlike last year at the Welter, where you felt after stage one that you know Roglic was going to roglify the race, there's an awful lot of riders obviously still in contention and looking pretty good. Well, we saw some hints, didn't we, Rich? Uh, much as we did in uh, the opening time trial on Saturday in Burgos. And the biggest hint um, as regards the contenders' conditions came from Richard Carapaz. And he, well, he was dropped from the lead group as he... He's prone to do, he hung on, he tried to cling on, he came back a couple of times to the group of favourites but was eventually distanced and lost around a minute, just under a minute, didn't he? Not enough really for us to declare tonight that his GC challenge is over. But of course, you know, there is this trident at Ineos Grenadiers, three potential leaders, Adam Yates, um, Egan Bernal and Carapaz and he has certainly, well he's become the junior triplet of those three hasn't he as far as his GC hopes are concerned because well not least because Adam Yates looked very good didn't he uh, he was one of the more prominent riders um, among the favourites in that group that came in behind and the group that was led home by Movistar the Movistar trio the Movistar trident um, Emmerich Mass in particular he gained a few seconds Alejandro Valverde also looked good and let's not forget Superman well, those two, Mass and, and, and Superman, led the led the favourites in. Adam Yates did look very good indeed, as you say, Daniel. And, and Mika Landa was there, nothing to worry about for him. Egan Bernal was there, looking pretty good too. So, some guys uh, slipped a, a few seconds. Hugh Carthy, another slightly difficult or troubling day for him. Um, but up ahead, it was a fantastically taken win by Ryan Taramai, wasn't it? A rider who we've known about for many years. He's been a bit of a bit of a journeyman in a way. He's moved around teams. Um, a talented rider. Um, 34 now, is he? Ryan Taramai. I looked at this up earlier. He's 34. Um, and, uh, yeah, he won ahead of Joe Dombrowski, who won the early climbing stage in the Giro this year, of course. And uh, I think they were both in the breakaway that day as well at the Giro. Um, but the the rules were reversed today. And Taramai, I mean, on the approach to the climb, there were a lot of good riders in that break with Kenny Ellison, um, Lillian Kalmajan as well from AG2R. And he, he's a strong rider who really needed to get away before the climb and before the, the, the specialist climbers took over. Um, and he tried, he tried and, and kept trying and, and made it hard. Um, I exchanged a few messages with Joe Dombrowski after the finish. He He just felt that he'd maybe been a little bit too aggressive, but he needs it to be hard. He he can't handle all the jumping around. So it was in his interest what Kalmajan was, was doing because he was making it hard. Joe was trying to make it hard too, but then paid a little bit for it. And Taramai on the day was just a bit stronger. When he went, he went very well indeed and, and stayed away. Yeah, I uh, thought today was going to be a good opportunity for the breakaway. I thought it was similar actually to the stage I won earlier this year in the Giro where... <laughs> I didn't see that the GC teams really were going to be so keen to pull. And, uh, yeah, I thought, you know, maybe I would have my chance. And I took it, and I saw that we had a good gap uh, going into the final climb and that we were going to play for the win. And uh, honestly, a little bit disappointed to be second. Like, obviously, 
you always want to win and uh, maybe I was a little bit too aggressive on the climb uh, I wanted to use the steep sections to try and make a difference um, but I think Teramai was super strong today and uh, I did my best and yeah I'll keep looking for more opportunities as the race goes on and I'm, I'm sure there'll be more chances and um, yeah if I can win an, another stage in this Vuelta it would be super. Taramai whose career in a certain sense has been defined by the Vuelta or various moments some of the the most significant moments of his career have come at the Vuelta. He sort of revealed himself to an international audience when he was a very young rider in 2009 when he was away and looked certain to win the, well, it was a medium mountain stage, finishing uh, on a very steep climb at Sorette Cati uh, near Alicante. And he had a spectacular collapse and lost um, several minutes in the space of a few hundred meters on that final climb and, and wasn't successful in winning there but did finally win a stage in 2011 so 10 years ago at um, La Farapona um, up in Asturias where we were last year as well and um, yeah he well he marked the 10 year anniversary of that today by taking the taking the red jersey and the stage but he's a very talented rider I mean in 2011, he won that Vuelta stage, but he also debuted, made his debut in the Tour de France and finished 11th, I think, um, as a 23-year-old. And there were high hopes for him then that he was going to go on to become a very good GC rider. He's had sort of smatterings of good results, very good form. In 2015, I remember, um, he had a sort of fantastic Indian summer when he was riding for Astana. Um, in the late summer, he won back-to-back, Rich. He won Vuelta a Burgos, funnily enough and the Arctic Race of Norway. But then changed teams, went to Katusha the next year, and he's sort of bobbed around between a few different teams since then. Yeah, and, and a very valuable uh, win for his team as well. Antermache have not had much to shout about this year. He was in that breakaway with Joe Dombrowski and to the stage of Sestola. It was also a very cold day, Rich. And I was just looking at a, at a map, and he was born in Tartu in Estonia. And I was hoping that he was going to be the northern the, the um, rider in the Vuelta field with the northernmost birthplace but i'm not sure that's the case because i think our old chum odd christian iking odd of who um, is a teammate of ryan taramai is born slightly further north at a slightly higher latitude than ryan taramai well another rider in the breakaway was kenny ellison wasn't he and and he's a specialist climber king Fuck. kenny king of kenny. course friend of the podcast king kenny third on on the stage i mean those three taramai um dombrowski and ellison really emerged after kalmajan's efforts the, the, the cream rose to the top in that break then it was quite telling how the you know the the, the the gulf between the 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 you know the the wild card teams and the world teams was quite stark when we began climbing when it started getting hard and those guys fell away and the world two riders went to the front um on joe dombrowski we, he did tell us in an interview in saturday's episode that he doesn't have a contract agreed yet for next year but um he uh, is confident that he'll have that signed the next couple of weeks. A little whisper that he might go to Astana. Um, who, who, Astana, who confirmed, who confirmed that, yeah, well, we'll get on to that a bit later. Uh, Astana, it was confirmed that they will carry on in 2022. They have lost their co-title sponsor, Premier Tech, but Alexander Vinukarov is back for 2022 uh, in charge of the team. Um, he lost that job earlier this year, but he's back and... Uh, 
they're going to be needing a lot of riders because they're losing quite a few. But you spoke to Kenny Alliston at the finish. Here's the king. Yeah, I was not in a great day. I was feeling bad, but they were kind of mocking me. So I was like, guys, if you want to go to the finish, like just try to pass because I'm full gas. And uh, I think they were trying. Uh, they were thinking maybe I was playing game with them, trying to be. But I was just, uh, yeah, I was, I was a bit uh, full gas. So I just said, guys, let's try to keep riding together, and uh, the strongest will win. And uh, it would be nice after a long day all together to be one of the break one, but we need to cooperate a little bit more. Kenny, were you, were you thinking about the general classification and maybe taking red jersey as well at any point? No, I was really thinking about trying to go for the stage victory. I mean. Uh, that's a stage I spoke with my DS um, like when we when I arrived because I was like I'm not sure a team a GC GC team will try to control that long with Edwin uh, like so so close I, I knew like it would be a good plan for them to give to give the jersey but I was just uh, yeah, after the tour and Olympics I, I'm a little bit tired so I was really just trying to to win the stage and uh, no more. Anglia Vontu, Picon Blanco, you love these sort of, well, this is a, becoming a, an iconic climb. Yeah, it is. I mean, uh, there is everything to be iconic there. Like, uh, it's hard, it's, it's windy, it's uh, grippy. And uh, yeah, every day, we, every year we come down to Volta Burgos. Now we come in Volta and uh, yeah, it's a really, really nice climb. You come in, it's a bit foggy and it's nice. Where are we, Daniel? That's where we are. That should be enough of a clue. That's a very good clue. It's been quite a journey to get here. Close to the start of the day's stage, we were told. <laughs> we're in Sad Hill Cemetery. Richard, explain what, where, why is famous Sad Hill Cemetery. This very bizarre place, um, which took us over dirt roads to get here from the start about a 15 minute drive is a huge cemetery but it's not a real cemetery it was built in 1966 for the film the good the bad and the ugly starring clint eastwood and um it was then it then fell into disrepair i mean it was uh, neglected and nobody looked after it um and it was the the, the grave the, the crosses that we see all around us thousands of them arranged around a kind of central um, circle where there's a very famous scene at right at the end of the film. The first place that was excavated in, well, we'll get on to that in a minute, won't we? Well, 50 years, almost 50 years after the film was made, the site was excavated by fans of the film and, uh, and, and recreated. And these crosses were put back in and they've got names of them, of people, I think, who've, who helped pay for the, the restoration. 15 euros a pop. Um, these graves, these crosses were sponsored. And um, there are some, well, there are some quite notable names on them. One, for example, with Metallica, the heavy metal band written on there. And I believe since 1983, Metallica has always started their shows with that, with, with the famous Ennio Morricone soundtrack. And also, the, I think, the pictures of Sad Hill Cemetery. It's not a thing to do, isn't it? To pay to have your, your name on a, uh, on a cross in a cemetery before your time. But... Um, God, yeah, there's, there's a pilgrimage here. Obviously, there's quite a few other people arriving now. I don't know if they've come up from the start of today's stage as well. Um, it was our colleague Pete Cousins who alerted us to the fact that today's stage started very close to this site. And, uh, well, we were watching clips from the film. The, the, the film, it's amazing to watch. It's 50, well, it's over 50 years old now. 
Um, but it was shot in very high quality film. It's it's in beautiful Technicolor, and uh, these scenes here at the end of the film, shot right in this very spot. Hard to believe, isn't it? It's kind of hard to get your head around that. But um, they, you know, it's so recognisable. These hills with the um, the, the the trees kind of sparsely uh, positioned on the hills around here. Um, well, it's supposed to look like the Wild West, isn't it, of America? And, Rich, we will be visiting the, or I will, the another location of the of the film. I think more of the film was, um, that was recorded down near Almeria. There's an area called the Desierto de Tabarnes, the Desert of Tabarnes. And that was where a lot of, not just the good and the, the bad and the ugly was filmed, but a lot of spaghetti westerns. The good, the bad and the ugly being the definitive spaghetti western. Directed by Sergio Leone, an Italian. Certainly. <laughs> Shall we go and uh, continue our pilgrimage, Daniel, with this soundtrack, which I don't feel remotely embarrassed by because lots of other people are walking around playing this music on their phones. Well, Daniel, that little detour to Sat Hill Cemetery, um, it, it was quite, it was a bit further than we had or, or anticipated because it looked very close to the start of today's stage. Um, but it was on a, a, a dusty, gravelly um, road, which made it quite a long journey. And it did cause us to be quite late at the finish. But I don't think we regret it, do we? We, we, we got a lot out of our trip. Certainly not, Rich, and we said to ourselves that we really ought to, well, we, sh we should have a screening, shouldn't we, at some point before you leave? Well, that's you're leaving tomorrow, aren't you? Um, so at some point in the next few hours, we're going to have to sit down with a big bucket of popcorn <laughs> and together, which will be extremely awkward, and, um, and, the good and, and, the bad and enjoy that. And, we were, and the ugly. We were scrambling for cycling links and cycling analogies, weren't we? Um, well, yeah, but you were imagining which cycling characters might have been there it playing the relevant parts. You imagined Alexander Vinukarov, Vinukarov, Patrick Lefebvre, and and another um, in the in the various roles. I think Vino with the little cigar hanging out of his mouth. I think I said earlier that um, in Spanish the good, the bad, and the ugly would be um, el el bueno, el malo, el feo. But strangely enough, the ugly and the bad have switch switch places in the Spanish title. So mm. it's the good, the ugly, and the bad. Yeah, well, it was it was a very interesting little visit, uh, and quite quite uh, having watched the the scene uh, on our way up there, it's it's so it's it just obviously looks exactly the same. And to imagine those 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 people there, um, all those years ago, um, was quite quite an amazing experience. Really, I recommend a visit if you can get there. It's not really on the on the on, on the, the tourist path. trail, no. Um, but uh, but but it was enjoyable. Um, this this morning, Rich, in Santo Domingo de Silos, we were still well dissecting what happened yesterday. There was a lot of talk yesterday evening, including on our podcast about positioning. Um, we we had another look at the the crash footage from yesterday. Of course, a lot of GC riders lost time yesterday, and we mentioned that Primoz Roglic had been pretty lucky. And we were sort of wondering about that, weren't we? Particularly in relation to what happened at the Tour de France when his whole team really came at cropper in the first week. And then um, we we're also thinking a bit about Hugh Carthy, weren't we, who had lost time yesterday. And he, uh, well, we'd sort of, um, we'd pointed out the fact that his team wasn't ideally placed yesterday 
either. So I thought I'd follow up on both of those two things. Jumbo Visma's positioning yesterday and also Hugh Carthy's with EF Education first. First two days, I mean, I know you lost a little bit of time yesterday. How do you feel about that? And was it just bad luck or a bit frustrated with the positioning? Or? Uh, yeah, a little bit frustrating, but one of those things. Uh, could have been worse than crash, so. Yeah, it could have been worse. They were a little bit behind, the, a little bit behind where we had to be, but uh, yeah, one of those things. How are you trying to approach those stages? I mean, you're, you don't look like one of the guys who's you know, desperate to be at the front and going into last. No, I don't know. We, we were actually further forward than we were, but we got caught behind another small, a near crash, and they ran out of force, so we lost a few positions there. But uh, yeah, I don't know. To be honest, we were a little bit far behind uh, where we needed to be, so we have to work towards to improve that. And just in terms of your condition, your form, you're pretty happy with how it's gone and, and how you've come into this race? Yeah, I think so, yeah, after last week. I think I'm pretty happy where I'm at. Uh, maybe not full top form yet, but I think I'm pretty close. So as long as I take care of the next few days and get through this first week, I can. Uh, I think I can, can do something later on in the race. Robert, yesterday we sort of pointed out that Primoz narrowly missed the crash. Um, and I was just wondering, after the first few days you had in the tour, whether there's anything different in the way you guys are trying to approach positioning on stages like yesterday. Well. Yeah, not really. Maybe he should have been a bit more to the front at that moment. But um, um, yeah, I think you're not always 100% in control with shows again uh, like uh, like yesterday. So uh, there's always a bit of a, a, a luck factor in, in cycling. Yeah. And we know team leaders who are always desperate to be right at the front, some who don't really care about being near the back. Where does Primoz fall generally on that spectrum? Well, he's quite relaxed, I guess. He's relaxed towards the team, and every now and then uh, we might uh, also have to push him a bit more. Uh, but in the end, uh, the being relaxed is uh, one of his biggest strengths uh, to keep it uh, all together, I guess, uh, throughout three weeks and uh, to stay focused uh, in the right way and not overdo it. Uh, but yeah, it's true, uh, the, the flat stages, the hectical finals, uh, that's, that's where we, we have to support him. Yeah. What do you think of that equation yourself of being the stress of being at the front versus the stress of maybe losing time? Um, if it was up to you, how would you approach it? Well, with, the, with the, the winner of the last two editions and the man in, in red, you cannot take any chances and you just have to be in front. Yeah. Today, confident? I think uh, both Sepp and Primoz have shown that they're quite strong. So <laughs> I think we can, uh, we can bring them uh, to the bottom of the last climb and see what happens. So, Rich, there was no real sense of yesterday and what happened yesterday and uh, the positioning errors we'd spoken about having caused any sort of crisis of confidence in either of those two teams or any real soul-searching overnight. But Carthy, well, he had a bit of a bad day again, didn't he? I thought he'd go well today. Um, uh, 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 there has been a bit of a pattern with Hugh Carthy that he does sort of grow into major tours. He's quite a slow starter, isn't he? Yeah, he lost 20 seconds today. Um, Roman Bardet as well, somebody we had high hopes for today, he lost another another 10 seconds on top of that, so 30 seconds. And, um, you know, those, I mean, on, on the other GC riders. Um, so, yeah, those are, they're adding up for Hugh Carthy. Um, you know, podium last year, 
that was his big goal coming into the race to to back back that up. And at the moment, he's not there with the guys who are contending. And Bardet was a bit of a surprise because the prologue, the sorry, the time trial on stage one suggested that he was in really great form, um, and you'd have expected him to be up there uh, today. So. Yeah, there are little signs. Vlasov, another surprise. I spoke to him this morning. Um, again, rode a really good time trial. Second GC rider in the time trial. We spoke on Saturday night, didn't we, about whether that was a good indicator of form or not. And, and it, it often is. But today, Vlasov was another one. He finished with Bardi. 30 seconds on Roglic and the others. And I think the issue of position is going to be very important over the next couple of days because we've got two stages coming where the wind could potentially blow. They could be very exposed. And I think people might well lose time again. And also, not many people have mentioned the fact that tomorrow's finish is slightly uphill. The last kilometre is uphill. and Not to the extent where I think it could be roglified. And in fact, I think Primoz Roglic will be very happy to let another team control the race for a few days. He'll be in no rush to take the red jersey off Taramai, will he? But um, there, there is a possibility that we won't see tomorrow on what looks like a, a pretty routine flat stage a routine bunch sprint. You might see a few different names in there. Science in Sport is supporting the cycling podcast at the Vuelta España. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Thank you very much indeed to Science and Sport, our longtime sponsor. If you want 25% off all your Science and Sport products, go to scienceandsport.com. And at the checkout, enter the code SISCP25, SISCP25 at the checkout. Um, Now, we're going to hear a bit later from James Knox, one of our audio diarists. He's just sent in his entry for today. If you want to hear all the audio diarists, that's uh, John Bao uh, of Uskatel Uskidi, Pavel Sivakov of Ineos Grenadiers and James Knox. Uh, they feature in our first episode of Kilometer Zero, released today. These will be released during the week, three a week, uh, throughout the Vuelta, so nine in total. And that was episode one. Lots more to come in the Kilometer Zero series. I know you're working, you're beavering away on a few episodes, aren't you, Daniel? Yes, I am, Richard. <laughs> yes, yes, I am. No more no more details at this stage. All will be revealed. Um one rider I spoke to this morning, though, Daniel, was Gino Mader, who kept an audio diary for us at the Giro, briefly. Unfortunately, his Giro didn't last very long. It lasted long enough for him to win a stage. Uh, but, oh dear, my my barbecue plate is just blown away. Um, but Gino Mader is doing something uh, quite uh, unusual at this year's Vuelta. He is raising money, or giving money, donating money himself to environmental causes. Um, he's basically paying a euro for every rider he beats on each stage. Um, he's donating that. It could add up to quite a lot over the course of the race. Obviously, if he wins a stage, it costs him more money. Um, so he's you know, made this commitment. He's asked for people to suggest which uh, good cause, which charity he should donate the money to. He's asked for um, suggestions on, on Twitter um, and he's had a lot of responses, a lot of people as well offering to match the money. Um, he's doubling the money if he wins a stage in fact. So uh, it's, a, it's a great initiative by him and I spoke to him this morning just to ask what was the motivation behind it. 
Do you know, mainly I want to ask you about your great initiative to raise money for environmental causes at this at this race. Um, what what motivated that? What prompted that? Uh, it's a it's a really like recent uh, problematic problematic, and uh, I think it's about time we also spread uh, awareness in like in the peloton in in the cycling community because. Um, we couldn't do our sport without a healthy environment. We couldn't do what we love um, without also protecting the planet. And it's about time that, yeah, we, we each individual, we just try to do our best. Obviously, we aren't perfect. And I don't, li uh, like, I don't think um, I'll be perfect anytime soon. But uh, I try to do my best. Uh, and, uh, yeah, now it's, now it's uh, money that's uh, going to help, hopefully. And... Uh, Maybe in some time, uh, it's also me personally, my time that I can invest. You've had a lot of responses though, and people pledging money of their own, so already it seems to have um, captured a lot of people's imagination. Uh, yeah, actually, it's, uh, I think it's my, um, in terms of uh, impressions and uh, likes, one of my most, uh, uh, one of my best uh, tweets. And uh, it just shows that uh, it's really a, like a problematic we, we have to talk about because, um, yeah, it catches attention, which is great, but the tension alone doesn't do it, does it? So how much does it cost you already? Uh, till now it, it ain't uh, too much. Yesterday it wasn't well placed in the sprint. Uh, it's only 282 euros by now. Um, but I've got some ideas how to, how to make it more. Well, you've got some ideas about how to make it more. If you win a stage, I guess that'll cost you a bit more money. Well, obviously, if I win a stage, I'm going to double it. Um, but I, I'll wait with announcing all the extra rules to my, uh, to my contribution by, by the time it happens. I guess, I mean, at the Giro, we saw you win a stage after Mikel Landa crashed out, and that gave you the opportunity, really. Here, I guess, primarily, you're in a supporting role. Oh yeah, obviously we we race for Landa in this uh, in this world and uh, try to do our best as a team for him. Uh, whether that that involves me going uh, going for a stage win or not, uh, we will see if the time comes. But uh, I'm happy to support him. Well, Gino Mader there, um, the Bahrain victorious rider. He's an interesting character, isn't he, Daniel? Um, he, I mean, we, he won that stage at the the Giro after, and really because his his team captain had crashed out. Here, his, his role is going to be quite different, but he is he's an interesting rider. An interesting team at this Vuelta a España. I talked about their fantastic midfield. I call it a, this extraordinary midfield of Wout Pauls, uh, Jack Haig, Mark Padun, Tratnik, uh, Gina Maida. is kind Tratnik, of in the Roy Keane role, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, and they somehow... Playing just in front of defence. There you go, sort of a regista. They, all, they, need to, they obviously need to find a way of... Of using their resources and to their best effect. We saw a bit of we that did. today. We did. I I spoke to Mark Padun this morning. I was asking him what was the batting order in. I'm mixing all sorts of sporting metaphors here um, for today's final climb. Cricket, who was, cricket's big in Ukraine. Yeah, course. who was going to pull when? And he said, "Yeah, you'll see on on TV." And we did. Well, we we saw most of it on TV. Well, I hope you were paying attention. Yes. Um, but Padden was very, was very much. Well, he was last man for Lander, I think, or he was probably the most conspicuous at the front of the bunch for a lot of the climb, anyway. But they, they seem to be riding pretty well. Also spoke to Jack Haig 
at the finish line and he well as we heard earlier on in the Vuelta he's sort of easing his way back into form after his crash in the Tour de France um, today he said he, he was a little bit disappointed he thought he would be slightly going slightly better at this point but still thinks he's going to grow into the race and I think well we're going to hear from James Knox just now and, and he talks about how really easy um, a lot of today's stage was and what a shock to the system it was. What Michael Matthews' heart rate was today. I wonder, I think it was about 44. <laughs> um, but w- the shock to the system when they did begin racing and then and when it went up the climb and this kind of stage can catch people out a little bit. Um, it's 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 a, it's an unusual kind of effort that's required of people and then the, the, the cold as well. Um, but let's hear what James Knox, the kind of quick step rider, had to say at the finish as he travelled uh, back to his hotel. That's the first summit finish in this year's Vuelta. Done. Good indicator of what's to come. It was a pretty like strange day. Um, the break went almost from the gun, really. A little bit of the big team sort of eyeballing each other, and then yeah, those eight guys got away. They got a pretty big gap. It was sort of just headwind most of the day. It was windier than yesterday, but never really threatened to do anything because it was mainly just sort of yeah blockhead um a lot of jumbo lads had to trudge away and, um and for the rest of us yeah it was a really easy day for most of the day uh tapping away in the wheels i reckon i stopped for a nature break about eight times today it was just one of those days never really got going eating drinking taking a leak coming back repeating that about yeah ridiculous amount of time and then, yeah, massive flick of a switch, and it turned into full, full noise, massive stress, all-out racing for the last maybe uh, 25, 25k, something like that. First off, there was that town that everyone wanted to be in. Then there was that last little Cat 3 KOM came flying over that into the next bit of left, right into the town, and then another all out into the final little town and then and then the last climb pick on Blanco so yeah it was, it was pretty stressful to be honest it wasn't very nice our boys did the best to help us keep us in position me Mari and Andrea all with a bit of a get up there get involved sort of idea but yeah um, the boys all did the best they could to help us I think Andrea was in a pretty good position to start uh, me and Mari were sort of I'd say scrapping about a little bit behind. There was bodies everywhere, every night. Day three, everyone trying to get involved as you'd expect. Um, and probably maybe not as high up as we needed to be, but yeah, still there, no excuses. Um, but the, yeah, the climb was hard and the racing was full gas. Struggled really on the sort of stop start, stop start. Um, and I did get distance after maybe only half the climb. But didn't really blow up. I came past Andrea, who blew up. But I just sort of kept hacking away. Just sort of kind of felt like I didn't quite have the, the zippiness in the legs. Maybe it'll come. I'm hoping it'll come because I didn't feel bad. I'm sort of looking at the file and feeling how I rode to the line. I kept pushing and pushing. So, you know, I'd like to say now there's hopefully more to come. But, yeah, not a brilliant start for the old uh, minor GC ambitions and whatnot. But anyway, um can't really argue with that sort of gave it my all and Mari just finished a bit ahead of me I think he sort of went the opposite way around he started off good followed the leaders um, and then in that last K I think when they sort of took off he kind of went backwards a little bit and only finished a little bit 
ahead of me. So yeah, um, we'll see how we go from here. Oliver's lost a bit of time, but like I said, no massive GC ambitions across the three of us, especially the other two of the lads, so a little bit younger than me, marrying his first Grand Tour also. So don't have to worry about that. Um, plenty of opportunities for breakaways and stuff to come. And then, uh, yeah, we had the sort of usual Vuelta carnage getting back down the hill. Wrapped up because it was weirdly cold on top. I had some uh, rain cape on a jacket waiting for me. But surprisingly, really didn't need it because it was a bit chilly. And then, yeah, there was just bodies everywhere getting back down the hill. Gary Seville shouting at people, stepping across the road, cars, lo you know, locals out on the bikes. It was, yeah, it was full blockage to be honest it took it took longer to get down than it did to get up so yeah um expect more of that to come for the next for all the rest of the summit finishes too and yeah last night in burgos now after a you know a good few nights at the same hotel and then from here we start our changing day in day out um get used to that so i think that's all it is safer today we've got some sprints coming up a couple of days flat see how the wind is um, and we'll be getting getting up to try and help Fabio. So, yeah, that's the plan for the next couple of days. Well, that was James Knox of the kind of quick step. Interesting what he said about the, the chaos of riding back down the, the hill. This is something we talked about at the, the Tour de France a bit as well. Um, something that a lot of people don't realise, that the riders often have to ride back down the mountain they've just ridden up to get to the team buses because there isn't enough space at the top of the climbs for the buses. Um, so they get wrapped up, they, they get a whistle so they can alert people to them coming down the hill. Um, but on a day like today, when there were a lot of people up there watching, um, a lot of vehicles as well, uh, it can be quite tricky, quite even quite dangerous and can take quite a long time. So not easy. When the riders finish the stage, um, they've often still got um, quite a quite a lot to do in terms of just getting back to the team buses and uh, before they even begin the journey to their hotels another part of being a grand tour rider rich tomorrow your last day tomorrow is my last stage before i come back out let's not forget i am coming back out for the final week you have not i should stress you have not been fired um as far as we know <laughs> as far as we know this is vaguely relevant because tomorrow rich we are starting in a place called uh, el burgo de osma famous for one thing pretty much it was the birthplace of a fairly despicable character in Spanish football called Jesus Hill, um, who was the president of Atletico Madrid for many years and was infamous throughout the world for being, well, extremely trigger happy when it came to firing managers and, well, also notorious for some very, um, as I said, pretty unpleasant right wing views extreme right-wing views and um, I think he once said that for him sacking a manager was like having a beer it, he could sack 20 in a year easily he would even sack 100 if he needed to he didn't quite sack that many but as I said he was it was pretty unprecedented um, well, when it came to giving people the boot well no I I definitely haven't been sacked um, because I'm going to feature in the in the Vuelta coverage uh, remotely while I'm not here and then I will be coming back out for the, the final week. Uh, he once sacked Big Ron Atkinson. Oh my you. God, he can't sack Big Ron Atkinson. Yeah, yeah. And you see any similarities between yourself and Big Ron Atkinson? Actually, hopefully not. No, I don't think so. I mean, you would certainly say that I don't have the same complexion, the same tan, but as Big Ron used to have quite an impressive 
tan, didn't he? Not not similar not, constitution. Not maybe. Oh, <laughs> come on, come on, please. Anyway, um, I'm sure you'll be nicer to me tomorrow on, on my last day. Uh, it's uh, we're expecting a sprint finish tomorrow, although there's the, there is as you say that little yeah. Kicker make it at the, the, end. the the last kilometres should be about six or seven percent. I right, make okay. it or five, six, seven percent around about there. We'll check it. Um, so that's going to make your top eighteen tricky. It is going to make it tricky, and it also even Ryan going Taramai in your eighteen uh, tips for today. No, but I think way. I did quite well. We'll do the we'll okay. we'll do the sums later. Uh, so who's going to win tomorrow? On paper, Rich, it reminds me of the finish last year in Pueblo de Sanabria, which was won by Jasper Philipson. Um, it was a wet day, but that was that's also. I think it was about 800 metres uphill tomorrow. I said it's a, a kilometre uphill, so Philipson could be a decent bet tomorrow. Michael Matthews as well. Another good bet, perhaps. We shall see. We shall see. Anyway, back for one more night in Burgos uh, before we leave there and, uh, and yeah, go to tomorrow's, tomorrow's stage, which takes us sort of close to Madrid. We haven't travelled far from Burgos the first few days of the Vuelta, but... We do start going south tomorrow um, and without looking back until that big long transfer up back up here again for the final week uh, where I will join you. Um, but anyway, that's all for tonight. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you, Rich.